Good morning. If we could please take our seats. I hope your breakfast was good and the drive up was smooth. Yesterday we engaged in series of uh, discussions uh, looking at the general environment for security in West Africa, the trend uh, in U.S.-West Africa security relations. We examined issues of threat and threat perception, and the discussion carried over in some quarters to dinner. We hope to continue that lively discussion today. But quick amendment. One of the papers that uh, was supposed to have been sent, which is uh, Dr. Charles Agbo's paper, did not, uh, it, it can't be read. We are going to have Professor Agbese present that paper. So it will leave us more time to discuss. The paper will not be presented, in other words. Uh, Emmanuel Kwesia Ning's paper will be presented by Dr. Ako Adunvo. Uh, she would do her best to present uh, Kwesianin's paper. Kwesianin is at the United Nations doing some work uh, related to the topic that she, uh, he was supposed to present here. Uh, John Baku's paper is not here as well as Major Jan's. Major Jan uh, took ill, and uh, we hope that he will complete the paper and send it to us. So that will leave us with a lot of time to resolve some of the issues and questions that were left on the table uh, yesterday. Uh, the Department of African-American and African Studies uh, has been quite helpful for us in putting together uh, this meeting. And, of course, as I mentioned to you yesterday, Dr. Rick Herman, a director of the uh, Mission Center for International Security Studies, uh, is at the core of uh, this particular uh, meeting that we are having in terms of uh, the support of the institution. But uh, I want to acknowledge the uh, the, uh, the help from the Department of African American and African Studies. Uh, Professor Antonia Kalu uh, is the chair of uh, that department, and uh, she will introduce our keynote speaker this morning. If you could help me welcome Dr. Antonia Kalu to the podium. Good morning, everybody. Um, I want to give all of you a very distinct Buckeye welcome. Um, I'm glad to see everyone back this morning. Um, yesterday, I enjoyed listening to uh, some of the papers. I, I was a bit late in coming in, but... I, I'm enjoying listening to all the uh, presentations. But this morning, it's our uh, distinct pleasure, that is the African-American and African Studies Department's pleasure, to um, present and introduce my sister, Dr. Professor, Dr. Jendai Frazier. Dr. Jendai Frazier graduated from Stanford University with a BA in political science with honors, 
and African American Studies with Distinction. She obtained her MA degree in International Policy Studies and International Development Education. From 1991 to 1994, she received her PhD uh, in Political Science from Stanford University in 1994. She was assistant professor at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver and editor of the journal, of, uh, uh, the journal Africa Today. From 1995 to 2001, Dr. Frazier taught public policy at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. She brought practical experience to that position, having worked as political military planner with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and as director for African Affairs at the National Security Council during her time as a council uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow. From Harvard University, she went on to serve as special assistant to the president and senior director for African Affairs on the National Security Council. From August 2005 to January 2009, Dr. Frazier was the former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, heading the Bureau of African Affairs. She is the first woman to serve as United States Ambassador to South Africa. Dr. Frazier is a specialist in African Affairs and International Security Affairs. During her tenure at the National Security Council, she was instrumental in the decisions that led to establishing the $15 million President's Emergency Plan for HIV AIDS relief, as well as the Millennium Challenge account that has contributed to raising U.S. assistance to Africa to a historic high of $4.1 billion in 2006. Dr. Fraser's research focuses on strengthening civilian control of the military, conflict resolution, and establishing regional cooperative arrangements. She gets credit for designing the administration's policy for ending the wars in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Burundi. Give my sister a hand. Thank you. Professor Frazier joined the faculty of Carnegie Mellon University in 2009 as distinguished public service professor with joint appointment in the Department of Social Sciences in the H. John Hines III Colleges School of Public Policy and Management. 
That's enough. Antonia, <laughs> thank you. I'm not done. I'm not done. She promised two lines. At Carnegie Mellon, Dr. Frazier is also director of the new Center for International Politics and Innovation. Please, thank welcome, you. Dr. Frazier. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Antonia promised me last night that she was going to give me two lines, and that was it. And so... Uh, to hear the long version, um, I was uh, quite surprised, but it's a great pleasure to be here, and I thank you, Antonia, for that wonderful introduction, and Kalechi and George for organizing this fantastic conference. Uh, you could tell from yesterday how very excited I am to be back in my own company, you know, among academics, uh, having the joy of clashing ideas in the interests of advancing understanding, and so I, I, I was telling uh, one of my colleagues uh, at the center that I kind of got out of hand yesterday. I was just having so much fun. Uh, but, you know, fair play is turning back on me this, this after my presentation or even during it. Um, what I'm going to do today is talk. I got the easy topic. You know, General, yesterday you got the harder topic. When you, you know, talking about building coalitions and communities to end terror uh, very clearly means that you have to look at a comprehensive approach. And so that's what I'm going to focus on. But two disclaimers, um, like General Howard yesterday, I, I, when I got the letter of invitation and the topic was West Africa and the United States war on terror, it really surprised me. And I, I thought West Africa's main challenge is governance, not the war on terror. So why this topic? Uh, and I thought, especially West Africa, when I think about the terror threat in Africa, I think about the Sahel, AQIM. Um, and I think about the Horn of Africa going down that eastern coast, maybe even into the tip of South Africa. But I don't think about uh, West Africa um, as sort of the hot spot or the, um, the, the, the major front uh, in a war on terror, or however one wants to call it these days. I um, certainly do agree with the analysis that there are many conditions in West Africa that make it right for terrorist exploitation, and so it's probably important and fair that this conference is really looking at the relationships today. We don't want to get caught like we did in 1998 when everybody was saying there's no terror threat in Africa, and then we were hit uh, at the U.S. embassies in um, Kenya and in Tanzania. So uh, once again, uh, Kalechi, you and George are ahead of the curve, uh, even though I was a little uh, taken aback. I, I, the other thing I want to say is that I disagree somewhat with the perspective that West Africa is one of those regions of the world which has received renewed or new U.S. security interests and attention in the aftermath of September 9-11. I would argue that that interest has always been there. It's ongoing uh, security interest, and it predates 9-11, and we heard a little bit about it uh, yesterday when the general was talking about NPRI when we talked about Operation Focus Relief and other um, issues. And so I think really we're talking about a continuity. Uh, I would argue, in fact, that the, the very radical transformation in U.S.-African relations started before the 9-11 terror attack. And that transformation comes with, I would say, January 21, 2001. And that's when that was the start of the Bush administration, um, and Condoleezza Rice, even prior to the start of the Bush administration, had gone around as Governor Bush's main 
advisor on foreign policy. And when she talked about Africa, she always said, Africa is not a humanitarian interest. Africa is a strategic interest, and we're going to treat Africa as a strategic interest. And so prior to 9-11, you see a major increase in funding um, for HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria. It was recognized as an emergency. There was a call for the Global Fund at that time. Uh, there was, uh, uh, the, the, in 2001, the funding for HIV and AIDS was $300 million globally. Uh, by May of 2001, we had increased it by 200000 and with President Obasanjo and Kofi Annan in the Oval Office and in the Rose Garden to use those as settings to increase the visibility of the issue, uh, called for another $200 million, which would be a down payment on a global fund, which would be used to pool money uh, generally or globally. And then another $300 million was announced on the eve of the G8 meeting. There was also recognition of the need to deal with and end Africa's odious debt. Let's see, what do we do here? Um, there was need to end Africa's odious debt. There was uh, recognition, recognition. President Bush had gone to the World Bank in May of 2001 and called for the World Bank to provide all new funding to Africa in the form of grants, not in the form of debt. There was a recognition before 9-11 of the need to build peacekeeping and peace enforcement capability. We had already started the process of transforming what was ACRI, the Africa Crisis Response Initiative, into a CODA, the Africa Contingency Operations Training Assistance Initiative, essentially recognizing that most of the operations in Africa were not Chapter 6, they were Chapter 7. And so there needed to be a focused training that was appropriate for that type of an environment. I would argue, and in fact I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, but I, there's one window where I might be wrong, is that AFRICOM's development grows out of ACODA and ACRI. That's really the institutional heritage of AFRICOM, not the global war on terror. Uh, it's, it's, it's ACRI moving to ACODA, moving to the Global Peace Operations Initiative, moving to AFRICOM. Obviously, the global war on terror has accelerated that. Um, it's increased the uh, funding, uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the heritage is not in, in, in GWAT. There was also a recognition very early on of the need to back UN peacekeeping operations across Africa. One of the first things we did, although it took about three years for the Department of Defense to realize it um, or to, to accept it, I should say, was we got rid of Clinton's uh, presidential determination 25, which was a long laundry list of the conditions under which one would have to go in to support a UN peacekeeping operation, essentially globally, but really in Africa, coming out of the Somalia operation. They put a very high bar. We scrapped that from day one and said PDD 25 is no longer operative. And in fact, if you look at the records, you'll find that every single peacekeeping operation in Africa, we've supported. We have quibbled about troop ceiling levels for certain ones. Um, when the French want to increase the troop level in Cote d'Ivoire and there's a direct trade-off with what's going on in Congo, we will quibble. 
Um, when, you know, the French want to do something in one country and we're trying to do something in Liberia, we will quibble. Uh, but it's about timing. It's not about support for UN peacekeeping operations. There was also a recognition very early on that we needed to invest in the education. And so I would say that the foundation for building coalitions and communities to end terror, and I'm giving you my bottom line up front in case I run out of time, um, but the, the, the conditions um, or the basis for it, the foundation is to build mutual mutual U.S.-Africa relations, and that process started well before 9-11. Uh, it started in prior administrations, um, the Bush 41, um, Clinton, both uh, made a big push forward. And then uh, when President Bush came in, what you had was a very bold actor who created big, innovative um, initiatives in Africa, as he did globally. So when 9-11 hit, which was obviously a dramatic, it, it, it hit with a very dramatic fashion, um, it, it was coincident with an, or a confluence with a leader who was also a very bold, um, a bold leader, a bold decision maker. He wasn't cautious in his, his temperament. Um, he took chances. And so I think that that confluence fundamentally helped to reorder global affairs, um, but there was still continuity in U.S.-African affairs. Um, so, so what specifically um, was the impact of 9-11 on U.S. policy towards Africa? I was there in the Situation Room, walking into the Situation Room at the National Security Council, when the first plane hit the Twin Towers. And so you could see it because the Situation Room has big screens and, you know, it's all of the intel and military guys and people uh, uh, manning the phones. So you saw it. We went into Condi Rice's morning meeting after the first strike. We sat down, and then there was a second strike. Um, so she, had, she was convening her national security team at the time of the second strike, and someone came in, one of the guys from the sit room came in and handed her a piece of paper and said there was a second attack. Well, anybody who had worked in the Clinton administration, as I had, and happened to sit in the Transnational Threats Office, so with Dick Clark watching um, al-Qaeda, especially leading up to the millennium, you knew the, the, the MOU of al-Qaeda. We knew immediately this is al-Qaeda. This is a terrorist threat simultaneous attack, hitting a, a, a place that they've hit before. This has all of the, the markings of an al-Qaeda attack. Condi Rice knew it as well. She essentially uh, dismissed um, some of us. I was dismissed. Um, she said, go back to your office, take care of your team. She kept her person who does defense. Uh, she uh, kept her person who did counterterrorism. She kept her person who does nonproliferation, and they immediately got to work. The rest of us went back to our office only to find out at that point that they had also hit the Pentagon, which was for a person who's worked in the Pentagon an absolutely unbelievable thing. We were told to get out of the building, um, and we all went running. Uh, and then we weren't contacted until the next day when they put, a, put up a phone operation so that the senior staff could be in touch and she could be in touch with us. But I can tell you that I, I can't, my, my mind certainly believes it was probably longer than it actually was. It seemed like 
until the beginning of the next year before we got our footing again um, in terms of policy because everything was about continuity of government, um, the possibility of another strike. Um, it was all emergency planning uh, around uh, CT. Condi Rice was no longer convening her senior staff meetings. One of her deputies would convene us. And at some point in that process, and I, I, I mark it from September to January, Condi came to me and said, what's the threat? What's the terror threat in Africa? What can we do in Africa? What, what do you see as, as happening? You need to convene a meeting of your counterparts and figure out what that looks like. And so we did that survey with the, uh, with the uh, counter, counterterrorism security group, the CSG. And what we focused on was East Africa. We focused on Somalia. We, we focused on al-Itihad, al-Islamia. Uh, and we determined at that time that, in fact, whereas there had been some early contact with al-Qaeda, there really wasn't any more. Um, it wasn't a major threat, but you did need to build capacity, especially in East Africa. We developed an East Africa counterterrorism initiative, which was a $100 million initiative, really focused on capacity building, terror financing, um, law enforcement, intel sharing, border security, customs control. And we also focused on the Sahel, the Pan-Sahel initiative. But that was a little tiny initiative coming out of State Department. You know, for us, if it wasn't 100 million, well, come on. I think this was like five or six or seven million dollars. I mean, it was seven million. Yeah, it was a tiny little initiative, also focused on capacity building. Um, and so the the initial assessment was that, again, Africa wasn't really at the forefront um, of this this global war on terror, but we needed to do. A lot, and in fact, our effort was focused on the dip diplomatic side of getting African countries to sign on to all of the uh, Security Council resolutions to create a collective response. Um, again, focused on things like tariff financing and tariff sharing in law enforcement. Uh, and so, that was the response. That was the response. West Africa wasn't high up on the priority. Um, it wasn't seen as a threat environment. Uh, and our policy carried forward. So I would just say, as you can see up here, that our overall objective to build communities uh, and to build coalitions is we need to enhance strategic partnerships. And you can see at the strategic engagement level that we're, I'm really talking about countries with capacity to project power across the continent. Um, capacity meaning diplomatic, skill, diplomatic reach, uh, meaning economic uh, impact. South Africa and Nigeria represent more than 50% of the GDP of the entire sub-Saharan uh, 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 countries. That's huge impact. Countries that have a major impact on their own sub-region. Our framing was to look at the, the continent in terms of the, the five sub-regions. Um, so Nigeria and West, South Africa and Southern, Kenya and East, and Ethiopia in the horn. And the way bureaucrats work, Ethiopia and Kenya, we couldn't decide between the two of them. Some people said Kenya was the one. Others people said it was Ethiopia, so we took them both. That's the way it happens sometimes. Um, not only looking at these major countries that project power, but also investing in 
the smaller countries that are carrying out very successful reforms in terms of governance and economic development, your Ghanas, your Malis, your Benin, Mozambique, you know, Botswana, um, these countries are not left out of a strategy. Uh, of a, they should not be left out of a strategic approach. Leveraging regional institutions, uh, we felt that it was important, for instance, to take the African Union as seriously as we take the European Union and to designate a U.S. ambassador uh, to the AU, which we eventually did. Um, and many of you know her, uh, Dr. Cindy Corvo, who was a DU graduate. And also to create presidential determination so we could work directly with the sub-regional organizations. Our, our legislation was such that we had to work with the countries, but we didn't have the authority to support and engage in terms of funding uh, the sub-regionals. We've got our first presidential determination actually under the Clinton administration with ECOWAS, very much focused on Sierra Leone and supporting uh, the ECOMOG and, you know, peacekeeping operations in West Africa. The last day of the Bush administration, he signed a presidential determination so that we could have that same relationship with SADC. Um, we finally got over the Zimbabwe problem and was able to actually sign a, a presidential determination with SADC. We also had one on his desk for Central Africa, but nobody could figure out what the institution was. Um, we figured it out, you know, those of us who do Africa, but the senior leadership just couldn't get their heads around um, actually providing financing to a Central Africa organization, which they couldn't figure out. So um, unfortunately, that one we weren't able to get through. Um, but leveraging these regional institutions, um, supporting them and leveraging them, and then containing failing states or fragile states. Uh, and, and let's be clear, Somalia is a failed state. Uh, it's, I consider it Africa's only failed state. I think you and I would disagree a little bit on that, um, but I don't like the term failed state, so I use it sparingly. Uh, Eritrea is, is, I don't know what it is. Um, and Zimbabwe is certainly fragile and failing. Uh, and, you, you know, we all can go to Guinea-Bissau um, and others as well that may fit into this category. So... Clement, when you were talking about having a, um, a strategic focus moving beyond, where are you? I don't see you. There you are. Okay. <laughs> moving beyond, uh, moving beyond a humanitarian issue into a strategic approach under the Obama administration, you missed that you'd already arrived. Um, we had a strategic approach. The problem, and I'll come back to this at the end, is how do you maintain that? And you'll see we built institutions, um, but the, the, the rhetoric may be a little humanitarian oriented right now. Um, I, I would say, and I'll just, I, I'm, I'm saying everything up front. I'll do my analysis as we go along. But I would just say that the way Africa becomes truly strategic, not just strategic because of an administration's perspective, but truly strategic is by becoming strategic. Right? When Africa is strategic, it will be treated as strategic by every administration, like China, you know, and others. So obviously, China is a big, big, you know, but like India, um, you know, the, uh, like Brazil is becoming as well. Um, so those are the pillars of our strategic engagement. 
how do we do this? How do we build these coalitions? Again, common interest is the key. Transformational diplomacy is essentially uh, a term that Condi Rice tried to coin or coined for her term as Secretary of State. And it's basically to try to use American power to help others to build their own nations and transform their own future, recognizing that the agency belongs with them, not with the United States. We are in a supporting role. There was talk yesterday, and I, I, I think it was you, George, who talked about creating space. Uh, that's exactly what I, how I translated this, is that you try to use America's power to make space for the agency coming from the continent. Uh, when, the way in which we dealt with our conflict resolution process, for instance, a lot of people give us credit for the North-South Agreement in Sudan. I will accept the credit. I like it. Um, <laughs> but, in fact, it was Kenya that negotiated that agreement. We used carrots and sticks. We used our power standing outside to push, to create an environment. Um, but Kenya did the hard work. In Congo, it was South Africa that did the hard work. In Burundi, it was South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda for a bit. In Liberia, it was Nigeria. It was Ghana that did the hard work on the terms of the real negotiation. So that was, and that was purposeful. We decided we don't need to step in as a mediator. Uh, there's plenty of capacity on the continent and, and skill and expertise to play this role. I may have overdone that a little bit, but that was purposeful and intentional. So creating space to finally develop a network of well-governed states that are, that are able through responsible sovereignty to protect themselves, i.e. the state. Uh, clearly, if you look at Congo, you understand the reason why the, you have to protect the state, the state writ large, um, protect the citizens, um, contribute to regional security, and thereby protect the international system from a terrorist attacks and, and threats. That, to me, is the strategic partnership that we need to develop with Africa. And it takes into account every level, um, the state level, the societal level, and the regional level, and the international level. That's what we're trying to build capacity for. That's what we need our partnership uh, to achieve. There was a lot of discussion yesterday about the sense that we're overdoing it on the military side. And so I put this chart up to give a sense of the um, actual allocation in 2008 of where our funding is going. And you will see that the majority of it is going, what I said, the, what did I call it, the healthization <laughs> the healthization rather than militarization of our policy. If we could be criticized of anything, it's that we spent so much resources, we've invested so much in health. Um, the bottom part of state, that really does represent State Department's role as the lead on security cooperation. I'll be frank with you and honest with you, what this chart does not reflect is the theater, the, theater, the resources that the theater commanders have at their disposal. And those resources are growing and growing and growing, both in terms of personnel as well as funding. 
Um, there, there's a 1206 budget, for instance, where they can give us some money now through the Congress, but we get very little on the Africa side. I think it's $100 million a year. Uh, and I think we got, like, uh, the last year I was there, maybe maybe 40 or so of that amount. But you can see again here that the majority of our money in terms of our uh, 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 150 account and, you know, our orientation is not on military or security. It's building the framework so that the environment in West Africa is not as vulnerable to terrorist threat. There was also the sense that our interests were oil and terror. I beg to differ. I have clearly stated that even after 9-11, terror wasn't considered the top priority in Africa. It is true that the global war on terror became the top priority in our overall interests. That tied with nonproliferation, the two going together. Weapons of mass destruction in a terror hand is a nightmare scenario. Um, and so the two together um, were the top priorities overall. Many people will try to use that to get more resources. And so they will frame it, you know, as, well, there's a terror threat, so, you know, it could be a terror issue, so we need to get, you know, you need to pay attention. I myself tried to do it um, on Liberia. I, I have to tell you, in 2003... We could not find that terror connection with diamond financing that everyone talks about. Um, we had Doug Farah in. I have him in my office over and over again, sitting with CIA guys, going over his information, and we couldn't col col collaborate, uh, corroborate that, um, that, that there was financing going to al-Qaeda coming out of diamond trades in West Africa and specifically in Liberia. We just couldn't do it. I didn't follow it after 2003 because we went into Liberia and it was no longer necessary to use it as a rationale. Um, and, I, and I just didn't, I didn't follow it. So maybe something has come up. But at that time, Doug was getting himself on the front page of the Washington Post, and we didn't think he had real, um, real evidence um, to support it. But what you see here is what are the priority countries. Angola, which has so much oil, isn't up here. So if our interests were driven by oil, or if our interests were just driven by terrorism, then I don't think you would have this prioritization of countries. And this was the, for the 2009 request. Kenya, South Africa, Ethiopia, and Nigeria are at the top of the list, particularly when you include HIV-AIDS funding. The reason why Sudan is so high is because of Darfur, the North-South, And this is mainly humanitarian assistance, uh, and um, that's, that's going to Sudan. Uh, Liberia, obviously, post-conflict as well. But you can, you can see that this, if, if either we're crazy and we don't, we're not funding according to our interests, but this was part of the Secretary's F process where we were very deliberate, and it was State Department, USAID, DOD, sitting together over a year process, coming up with our prioritization. This chart is not likely to change under the Obama administration. The only difference is they may 
put even more money into Nigeria if they can get it, if they can actually get the appropriation. Um, so I'm trying to give empirical evidence against the notion that our interests in Africa are terror and oil. Oil obviously is an interest, but it's secure for us. It's fairly secure. Obviously, there's maritime security in the Gulf of Guinea and all of that, but what I'm saying is even when we had the worst relationship with Sani Abacha, we were getting oil from Nigeria. Uh, and so you, you really focus on a thing when you can't get it. Um, we've never had a problem with getting oil out of Africa. Security of those offshore platforms is very important. There's no doubt about that. Um, but that's, that, that's, that's sort of um, a necessary part of stabilization. It's a necessary part of uh, counterterrorism, uh, most certainly. But the sort of the competition for resources, we don't need to compete for resources in, in Africa so far. We've, we've, we've had a fairly, um, uh, you know, those resources obviously go into open market, and um, we haven't had too many problems there. Moving from policy to programs, because you can talk a good game, but this question is, what do you do? Um, again, a comprehensive approach focused on, I didn't make very clear, focused on four specific areas. Um, and those four areas are health and education. You can't build communities and coalitions if you don't have people. And that point about not having people, when you think about the emergency that HIV-AIDS was, especially in 2001, when only 50,000 people across the entire continent were getting access to antiretroviral drugs, people were dying um, rapidly. I mean, and especially that, that sort of middle section of, you know, say 17 to 46, 47 you know, nurses and teachers and, um, you know, that, that, that class of people were just dying wholesale in some countries. Um, and so you had, to, you had to focus on keeping people alive, keeping people healthy, increasing the health. Obviously, education as well, um, critically important, particularly when you think about the youth uh, and, you know, the need to uh, both educate and then create jobs for them. And so we develop major initiatives. There's so many more than I've put on this list. There's, there's so many more presidential initiatives. I think we went crazy with presidential initiatives. Um, the major ones are the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS, which is continuing and is being increased funding, the President's Malaria Initiative, which is continuing, the Africa Education Initiative, which was a Clinton administration initiative renamed in the Bush administration. It was the Education for Development and Democracy Initiative, EDDI. Um, and then we renamed it and told the person who ran it to keep her head low. <laughs> Just, you know, and they'll think it's ours um, and we can continue it. And so it's the Africa Education Initiative. Then we created a new initiative, the President's International Education Initiative. AGOA was again handed off to us, then we uh, increased it. Uh, the Africa Global Competitive Initiative is really a capacity building. We, again, went aggressively after the debt question. We, we again, the president pushed for stopping the debt, multilateral debt relief initiative, which was to, in, to, to 
One was to stop the debt. The other one was to cancel the debt. The Millennium Challenge Corporation for uh, increased assistance to those investing in success countries. The Women's Justice and Empowerment Initiative was really focused on addressing the issue of, of rape um, and helping women to get the medical care that they needed to bring to justice those perpetrators of uh, rape and um, to build the, uh, a, a, an institutional capacity um, and sort of reintegrate them into society. Uh, it was really based on a program called the Tutuzela uh, program, which was a South African program that I became aware of as ambassador, but which was a Chilean program. It started in Chile. It went to South Africa. We picked it up, uh, and, uh, and the initiative was focused on four or five countries. Then the Global Peace Operations Initiative, which was, again, really it was a White House uh, Department of Defense initiative. We collided with each other, had the same idea. Condi gave it to Rumsfeld so that he could have ownership of it, leading to the Africa Command. I did not put in here the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Initiative because I know others are going to speak about that later. I'm supposed to end at 10.30, and I see my time is uh, going fast, so let me just flip through these initiatives very quickly. Uh, PEPFAR, I think everybody knows about PEPFAR. Um, 2009 is supposed to be at 39 billion. Obama, one of the first things he did is come in and increase that number again. And I think it, I, I don't know the number exactly, but my, my recollection is it's up to about $65 billion. Huge investment in, in health. Malaria, TB, and, um, and uh, HIV and AIDS, focus on HIV and AIDS and TB. Here's the Malaria Initiative. The Africa Education Initiative. It started out as a $200 million initiative. It's been increased to a $600 million initiative, especially focused on girls' education, but not only girls' education. Comes out of, um, obviously there's been a lot of work on this, but for me what really got me interested in this was hearing the story of Gracia Michelle, who talked about how transformative getting a scholarship was for her when she was a little girl in Mozambique. Uh, and of course it was for me as a, as a young woman at Stanford as well. Uh, but this is basic education. What we need now is higher education initiatives. This is the international uh, education initiative that is focused on those four African countries, 525 million. On the, going from the ed health and education, i.e. the priority of uh, keeping people alive um, and um, sort of supporting uh, social and civil society development uh, to expanding prosperity, By 2008, our development assistance was $6.7 billion. We had committed $8.7 billion by 2010. I believe we're still on track with that. AGOA, many people will say, well, AGOA only really facilitates oil coming into the U.S. market. Uh, that's largely true, but at least $5 billion a year comes in in non-oil products. 
That's $5 billion that wouldn't be there if it weren't for AGOA. That $5 billion can help to create jobs um, in Africa. You have the Africa Financial Sectors Initiative, one that I'm very proud of, nobody knows about, but it created seven private equity funds uh, mobilizing $1.6 billion in uh, capital for sub-Saharan Africa with a focus on uh, high development impact. I hope it will really focus on small business development. Again, entrepreneurship, creating jobs. And the Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative, which was 100% debt cancellation initiative, which President Bush actually campaigned on as governor, um, that when someone asked him, what will you do to deal with poverty in Africa, he said, we've got it in the debt. Uh, and and he, carried, he carried through on that promise. That what's not reflected here is separate bilateral debt cancellation initiatives of U.S. bilateral debt to the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as well as to Nigeria. A lot of fighting with Treasury um, to get that. But the point is that they shouldn't be paying back interest on these bad debts. Uh, instead, building schools, you know, using those resources for education, schools, for health, uh, for, for building the types of societies that can withstand uh, threats, whether they're from, you know, rebel groups and, you know, militia groups or terror groups. This is the capacity building initiative. It probably doesn't belong here, but capacity building is important. I don't think the president ever heard about the African Global Competitive Initiative. It's more of a USAID one um, that they always throw in. And then we have the Millennium Challenge Account. When we move from sort of trying to help support economic development into an initiative which is primarily focused on growth, um, poverty alleviation, but growth, uh, expand the pie, but also touches very, very much on all three elements, investing in the people um, and ruling justly. So those are the criteria that a country is supposed to meet to get to qualify. Control of corruption is what we call a hard hurdle. If you're corrupt, you're not supposed to get MCC. Clearly, that's not working. <laughs> there are countries in there where we know that there's corruption. Um, this, this Millennium Challenge account has led to the signing of $3.9 billion, and you can see the countries and the size of the, um, the compacts here. And then... Here you have countries that aren't, weren't quite Millennium Challenge ready, and so it's focused on specific sectors like uh, um, in Tanzania, it was about corruption. They created a unit in the Treasury Department to try to track corrupt, uh, you know, corrupt practices. Um, each country decides what it wants. I think the Rwanda one was supposed to be on freedom of the press. <laughs> I don't know if it's working, um, but um, these are um, uh, Senegal is a country that just signed an, uh, a compact um, with Clinton, with uh, the, the Obama administration uh, with uh, Watt and Secretary Clinton, and obviously Mauritania fell off um, with the, the crisis that took place there. This is the total for 06, the total for 07, and the total for 08. So investing in success, really doing so, not just talking the talk. Governance. At the end of the day, there is this 
un, um, this uneasy feeling that if we're spending a lot of time, especially on the security side, um, what impact is the global war having on governance in Africa? And I, I think this is too aggregate of an indicator, but I think nevertheless it's suggestive. Uh, and it may have changed, obviously, in 2009 with some reversals, which is taking place. But the, the, the point is that a Freedom House, which is pretty tough on these issues, in 2001 had only 45.8% of countries free or partly free. And by 2008, 71% would, would, were, was classified by them as free and partly free. As I said, 2009, that number may have uh, gone down. And it's really very problematic dynamics that are taking place, especially on the coup d'etat side. And then investing in a security architecture. And the point that I, I, I want to say here is the vast majority of our resources on security has gone into the peacekeeping side, not into the war on terror side, although that may change with Africa Command having resources through the DOD that aren't seen uh, broadly in the um, interagency. Uh, but the ACOTA programs to train and equip, more than 80% have deployed on UN and AU peacekeeping operations that have been trained under the ACOTA. I think I have the number wrong on the global peace operations. I don't think it's 500 million over five years. I think it was 800 million. That's a big difference. Um, 300 million is not insignificant. So I will, I, I'm not going to be able to find that number for you. So take that number with a grain of salt. Uh, it is, it is definitely, is it 500 million? It's 800 million. I thought over five years, right? That's right. Um, this is a program that was intended to train peacekeepers globally with a focus on Africa. We at the White House, i.e. at the National Security Council, wanted a bigger peacekeeping operation um, program. You see our funding for ACOTA was small, 15 to 20 million in 02, 29 million in 06, was small. We wanted a big initiative. When I was at the White House, initiative wasn't real unless it was $100 million. That was sort of my, my standard, was if it's not $100 million, it's, it's not really serious. Um, so we wanted a big initiative. So we were working on um, a, 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 a strategy for that. At the same time, Rumsfeld, for different reasons, was working on a strategy. Rumsfeld's reasons was there's more and more of these peacekeeping operations. He was thinking about Haiti and other places, and he didn't want to do it. He didn't want U.S. forces in peacekeeping operations. And so his motivation was we have to train peacekeepers globally so that they can do these types of operations, and U.S. forces will not have to do this work. Uh, and... And that was the motivation uh, for Rumsfeld. Our motivation was we needed to do more peacekeeping, and it, we got the uh, the $800 million um, uh, peacekeeping, the Global Peace Operation Initiative. It is not run by the AF Bureau at State Department. It's run by the uh, P, a Political Military Affairs Bureau with AF um, input, whereas ACOTA is run by AF. Um, then we also have done a lot of work, or some work, not a lot, but some work on uh, training and equipping of AU missions, UNAMID, uh, maybe future standby brigades. I don't really want to talk about Somalia, but it's way less than $100 million, that's for sure. And then the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Initiative, I'll leave it to uh, my colleagues. So investing in the security architecture 
um, in Africa is critically important. And our emphasis had been peacekeeping. I don't know what the emphasis will be, but I suspect it will continue. This number is wrong, too. It shouldn't be 150. It should be 179 million. But it's not a lot. You think about the health initiatives. We're talking billions of dollars. You think about the um, MCC and the, the um, economic initiatives. We're talking billions, multiple billions of dollars. Um, and the, the investment in security has not been significant. So as Peter said, where's the money? And then I think this slide shows the need for that investment in jobs, that investment in education, that creating a stable environment for the future of Africa. So investing in Africa's youth is, for me, the fundamental task of any effort uh, towards building coalitions and communities to end terror. It's about the young people and the future that they will have. We have a responsibility to them. That's it. I'm happy to take any questions. I knew it. Let me say a couple of things about that. One is there are these small little pockets of money, mainly run out of USAID, extremely hard to track, that go towards supporting parliamentarians, um, that you know go towards those types of programs. We had asked in this this budget process that I that I talked about this the, what was called the Foreign Assistance Project, where we were supposed to get a more strategic orientation to our 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 budget uh, requests, we had asked for a pot of money focused on all of these upcoming elections in Africa. And it wasn't intended just for monitoring the election on the day, but for creating the monitors long before the election day, um, for helping the uh, electoral commissions, right, to become more professional, uh, to support sub-regional organizations deploying monitors. Uh, you know, a lot of work to try to, because really what we were just struck by is how many elections there were coming up and how destabilizing these events can be. We couldn't get the money. Um, the, 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 the secretary was skeptical, uh, and she was skeptical, be, skeptical because we asked for an election fund, and she said that the appropriators would treat it as a slush fund. And the appropriators like tied aid. They like to know exactly what specifically is this dollar going to go towards. 
And so you couldn't budget ahead of time. Um, it was very difficult, I should say, to budget ahead of time or to have a, a fund that was flexible enough to be responsive like the Kenya situation. I'll take, for example, the Kenya situation. We didn't have, we had our standard little bit of money here and there to help with some, you know, monitors from NDI and IRI, et cetera. But to really get in there and deal with the environment that was being created, you know, the, the sort of, um, what do you, what, 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 the ethnic, you know, tension and um, sort of hate radio and that the environment that was created, we didn't have any money. Um, to, to be responsive to that. When the crisis happened, then all of a sudden we could get 40, 40, 40 uh, what was it? It was, it was $40 million because I wanted 100, um, and I got 40. Uh, we could get $40 million to, do, to go into communities and do reconciliation you know, work with you know, using local officials and you know, churches and civil society groups. We could get money to go to the Kenya Human Rights. Uh, you know, it was after the fact that the money was available. It wasn't there beforehand. And they treated it as a slush fund. And we, we tried it at least on uh, two of these uh, budget processes. We put it back in front of the secretary. And it was very difficult to get it past her and her team and then to uh, the appropriators. And she, it wasn't that she was skeptical about the need. It was that she thought they would treat it as a slush fund and not give her, and then we'd lose the money altogether. And so the incentive was against even asking for it um, if it was in a category that was unlikely to be funded. And so we are not doing enough. Most of the work that we do on elections is we work with civil society groups in particular environments, which is difficult. You cannot work with political parties unless you work with all political parties. Right? And there are certain environments where you don't want to work with all political parties. Um, we do a lot on, you know, helping with voter education. We do a lot with monitors uh, and that type of work. And then we do a bit with parliamentarians. It's hard, and it's hard to track because it's decentralized in embassies. And any ambassador will tell you that, sta that USAID will squirrel away money, right? They, you, it's hard to find the money that they're using. They squirrel it away. I don't think he is. We have little governance programs. We don't have we don't have big, innovative, impactful governance programs. Um, we have little tiny pieces of money going here, there, and everywhere. Um, no, I don't think it will change because he had the opportunity in that speech to talk about how he was going to do it differently, and they didn't. I mean, that's the problem with going early, right? When you go to a place early, you should be going to listen and to consult, right, and to learn. Um, and, uh, uh, it, or you should wait and delay your trip until your, your, your team has had a chance to develop and build policies around something so that you can then go and deliver, consult, um, and, you know, but they, he went so early that I don't think they had a chance to build any. In fact, they, the Africa team didn't know he was going, <laughs> you know, to be just frank. They had no idea that he was going to Ghana. Uh, so they didn't, have a t they didn't have time to sit around and do a deliverables meeting and try to figure out what could they build so that he could, he could, he could um, you know, uh, announce it while he was there on governance to put some meat behind the words.
went to Ghana was in 1994. I think we did the first two nights going to the hotel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Libya. And, uh, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> and the nails told me that's a gift from Libya. Yeah. And then I, I spent uh, the rest of my stay at Makato Hall at the University of Ghana Legal. That's built by Makato. And then went down to the foreign ministry. I saw a pink house. Very imposing. What's that? That's from China. Yeah. You mentioned the word branding yesterday. Yeah. I see all these figures. The US is doing a lot of things, spending a lot of money. To the average American and the recipient population, they don't see it. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is there something that folks like you can do so that when you really do make these expenses, they stand out? I mean, that's just a comment, yeah. okay? Drum for the guy. Um, my question, based on your response to Andrea's question, actually, is this way. If I ask you to change your title just a little bit, I say building coalitions and communities to support Africa in the U.S. Yeah. What would be your response? To support Africa in the yeah. U.S.? Yeah, and not, and not to end terror. Yeah. To support Africa, to support, to support, so those communities supporting our Africa policy. To help make yeah, yeah. To help yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that's been done. Um, I mean, I just want to put that out there at the beginning. The um, I, I mentioned how the lead mediators of all of these conflicts were not was not the U.S. They were not Europeans, they were Africans, right? I mean, that's, that's a huge deal. And that capacity is not just with governments. Those governments are supported by civil society, you know, groups who have this expertise. So that's a big, big, big deal. Um, secondly, the PEPFAR program was based on a program in, Ga I'm, not, I'm sorry, in Uganda and in Haiti. The ABC, Abstinence Be Faithful, Use Condoms, philosophy of that program comes from Uganda. The sort of doctors on motorcycles or local um, health workers who have access into the you know, rural, very rural, rural areas came from Haiti. And so my experience has been that our most successful initiatives are initiatives that are building on lessons learned already initiatives coming out of, you know, African societies or other societies that have been faced with similar challenges, not coming out of some whisk kid sitting in mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. And so the thinking that's going on in Africa, it's a matter of us connecting, right, and, and, and an openness on the part of any U.S. administration to getting and hearing those lessons um, learned. As I said, the justice equality, um, the women's justice and equality initiative comes out of, you know, clinics in um, South Africa coming out of clinics in Chile. So I think that's innovation. If we can get innovation coming out of Africa and we can connect to that, that's one. Leadership, 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 leadership. <laughs> right? We can't say it enough. Um, and I, someone said the other day, leadership at all levels. Um, I, and I think that that's right. Leadership at all levels. Ownership. You know, if, if, if w w the, the, the more that Africa projects a sense of own. it's a pain in the ass sometimes, right? I mean, honestly, as a as a as a diplomat, and there are times when we don't see eye to eye. Mostly, I think 
80% of it is mutual. But there's 10% where it's not, you know, and we have divergent interests. Um, but even if I have to fight for my interests, and I know that the, the reason that I'm getting pushback is some credible perspective, it's, it's worth it. Right. I'm talking about the constituency here in the United States. Yeah. Well, there is, a, there, is, there is a constituency. Much of the uh, Africa policy, when I went into the Bush administration, I didn't have a policy because I was a great academic sitting there thinking it through. It was because of the National Summit on Africa. There was this mass mobilization across our city saying, what should our Africa policy be? Right in 2000, and I was part of that process on the peace and security side. Others were on the democracy side, others on the education side. Someone, and we have those documents, and they have recommendations, and we took those recommendations and brought it into the policy. And so there has been a lot of uh, work, you know. And and unfortunately, those documents are probably sitting in a lot of people's storage right now, you know. But but it was so fresh for me, and I had having been so integral in it on one side, I took that. And, um, and translated it. Um, Bono, you know, you know, people want to knock the celebrities, like Dambisa Moyo, you know, wants to knock the celebrities. But those guys have been important to building consciousness about Africa. And, and you know, unfortunately, the whole Darfur situation, as terrible as it is, it has activated a whole new generation of young people the way the anti-apartheid movement did in universities. Now you take them and then educate them. Right? They're passionate, they're, they're do-gooders, right? They want to do good, but they don't quite know how or what. You know. So we now have that, that, those young people who will be adults, and you know, we keep that flame of fire in them. And uh, So I think that we have a nascent um, uh, constituency. I think you need to hold the new team accountable. I, I, I really, I, well, I'm just going I'm, I'm to say that again. <laughs> I think you should not give them a pass. You know, when I, when I came in as the president's special assistant, I said to all my friends in the constituency and civil society and academia, I said, hold us accountable and judge us on our record. There's issues in here that are problematic. There's some stuff in what I presented that's not working well. The MCC, the money's not getting out fast enough. You know, there are problems. Uh, I said, hold us accountable. We have to hold um, the new team accountable and don't give them a pass. Uh, Peter, Rick, and Tony. Okay, thank, thank you, Jenna. Yeah. Uh, in passing, you mentioned some of the difficulties that you encountered. What would you say were some of the most uh, or the biggest challenges that you face in making African policy, either at the State Department or at the NSC? Um, or at the Joint Staff, yeah. right? Because I was at the Joint yeah. Staff. Um, uh, uh, stereotypes um, is a big, huge issue. Uh, that's a huge, huge issue. You know, there's this sort of, oh, they're all corrupt. And why, why do you want to try to build the African Union anyway? That institution is going nowhere. You know, you, you do hear those types of, um, you know, I mean, especially some old guard, you know, some people who, you know, they're sort of, they're sort of cynical now, um, and they're still in the system. Uh, and so you have to sort of fight over them, knowing that 
there are going to be failures, right? I mean, you, you, you know that, but that's true everywhere in the world. It's not unique to uh, efforts in Africa. Um, so that's one challenge is sort of stereotypes and ignorance. Um, secondly, you have to be bold and willing to fight. The Africa team, you know, there's an Africa team that's an institutional team that, you know, they're, they're professionals and they've been working Africa and they're dedicated and they're committed and they, you know, they primarily work in the Africa bureaus, right? They're expert. Um, these are ambassadors and, you know, deputy assistant secretaries and there's officials that have, you know, that for years they've been in this and they are used to taking crumbs, right? They're just used to accepting when it's just going to be $2 million, Right, and it's only gonna and, and money is not everything. I'm not trying to use money as saying it's everything, but certainly you can't do much on two million dollars, right? Um, I mean, you really can't. And they're used to accepting defeat very quickly, um, and it's sort of an attitude of, well, we're not going to get too much, so we'll just make do with what we have. Uh, and I think that that was very hard to overcome, uh, and. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and I was lucky because I started at the White House where you didn't have that attitude, right? Uh, I mean, I started, again, like I said, and I'm, I'm not saying this because I want to, you know, pat President Bush on the back, because just being bold can also be problematic in certain circumstances, right? There are certain circumstances where you need him to be more cautious or a person to be more cautious, but his orientation was bold, and so we could take bold initiatives to him and get sign off on it and change the attitude a little bit. I remember the East Africa Counterterrorism Initiative, and we said it was going to be $100 million, and you would not believe how hard it was. Well, I understand now, having now sat at State Department, because a lot of that money was coming for some programs that they already wanted to do. So it wasn't necessarily increasing the money since it was an initiative that just came out of nowhere. Um, and we didn't have a chance to go to the Hill and ask for more appropriation. So I understand their attitude, but I do think that that sort of defeatist um, attitude is also problematic. And then the third thing I would say is a strategic perspective of Africa. And that was, as much as I say that we were strategic in the White House and we were, there still wasn't this sense that Africa could help us deal with the Middle East. We believe that Europe can help us you know, deal with any place and almost everywhere. We don't recognize the relationships, the ties that African leaders and African, you know, officials and others have into Europe, I mean, I'm sorry, into the Middle East that we could leverage, we could use, we could learn from. They, they, you know, there's a bridge there that we miss, you know, and um, so so that, that notion that, we will bring Africa into our mainstream, but we're not actually using Africa to, um, to support these global uh, priorities that we have, um, you know, in terms of other regions. You know, we will work with Africa on Africa, um, but we'll work with Europe on everywhere.
Well, you just got to figure out which war you're talking about, right? Because the war that we're talking about is the the the, the regional war, the the regional war that included Namibia, Angola, Zimbabwe, Chad, Uganda, Rwanda. You know, there was a bigger war that was taking place in 2001, not the Eastern Congo war that's going on right now. Right, but a, a bigger war that had all of these countries engaged in and involved at some level. And, um, and in addition to all of these states, you also had the internal war that some of them were supporting, you know, the RCD and the MLC. And so you had this civil war and interstate players in the Congo as well. And so ending that war, which was a negotiated peace through the Sun City Agreement and other agreements, that led to the historic election in the Congo. No one believed that you could actually carry out an election in the Congo. There hadn't been one since, you know, Lumumba was killed. And, you know, so it was really quite historic. And the infrastructural, you know, this, this Reverend Malu Malu was the uh, head of the Electoral Commission. And uh, he did a fabulous job. The South Africans played a, a huge role. Um, the... Germans and others, I think, provided some security to beef up the capacity of the, uh, the UN uh, peacekeeping, uh, the MONUC forces. Uh, so that's the war that, we're, that I'm talking about, which was the, the initial one. Now, how did we do it? What, how was our engagement? Was it early? It was very early because the first crisis that Condi Rice dealt with as national security advisor was Congo. Because you'll recall that on January 20th, Laurent Kabila was assassinated. And her first major crisis in security briefing from CIA, et cetera, on a particular crisis, not just your general background briefings, was Congo. And one of the first issues we faced was Kabila, Joseph Kabila, wanted to come to the United States. And everybody thought he was next, right, that he was probably going to follow his father and get killed. He certainly uh, was concerned about that. And the feeling was, is he going to come and seek asylum? Is he going to get to the United States and seek asylum? And how do we deal with that? And, you know, it was, it was very turbulent. Um, and uh, and he's, his first meeting, which was Secretary uh, Obama's, I mean, Secretary Obama, listen to me, Secretary Powell, that just goes to show, I would have wanted Powell to run for president. Then <laughs> 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 I'm getting ready to say President Powell. <laughs> but Secretary Powell's very first meeting was with, Kabila, um, as a head of state, his very first meeting with the head of state. And we were involved from the very beginning. I myself had a background because when I was part of the Clinton administration, I worked the regional aspects of the Congo crisis uh, and, 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 ha- and had been trying to get the, the Clinton administration to situate Congo with the South in SADC. As, as the mechanism for ending that war. Uh, obviously, it's much more stable. You can't take it to the east because Uganda and Rwanda were in there. Um, and so, you know, despite the fact that Angola and Zimbabwe were, I thought that the south could had the capacity to try to end it. Eventually, that's exactly what happened. Um, but that's, that's what we're talking about. So it was very early. Condi Rice worked the issue from the outset. I mean, she worked it. She was calling Kabila. She was calling... Um, 
Kagame, when Secretary Powell went on his first trip to Africa in May of 2001, he went to Uganda and he made in no uncertain terms to Museveni that he needed to get out of the Congo. I think Secretary Powell doubted that he would. I said, go in there, be strong. I'm certain he's going to come out. You know, obviously they go in and out, but um, he, he did withdraw his troops shortly after that trip. Uh, and so you, um, and we made it very clear with Rwanda who was seeking a strategic relationship with us. The Rwandans are very fast engaging any new administration. Um, they were seeking a strategic relationship. We told them it's not possible with them uh, still in the Congo. It took them a little longer. Uh, but so the, the engagement was strong. The President Bush met with Museveni, Kabila, Kagame at the UN General Assembly in September 2001, working the issue personally. So the Secretary, the, the National Security Advisor, and the President were engaged in working the issue. So we weren't on the sidelines. I had indicated one more question. I see there are about three other hands or three people that want to ask a question. It will be at your discretion. I'll, be, I'll, I'll shorten my answers. Okay, we'll, we'll go till 11, then we take oh. a five minutes break and Good question. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me answer that in, in very quickly. But excellent questions, and it brings me to some of the, the sticky points in there that I said I didn't mention, but you, you're bringing them out um, on the securing the environment. Um, I said we heavily invest not as much money, but when you look at UN dues, etc., it is quite a lot of money. Um, on UN peacekeeping operations, right? I mean, we, we, in terms of post-conflict and conflictual environments, we have not, not supported any UN peacekeeping operation. We've supported them all. Um, and so that's one framing, is the peacekeeping operation side. 
the security sector reform, uh, civil military training side, uh, we could do more. You're always in a, in a fight with civil society, right, which is saying butter but no guns, you know, right? They, they, they always pit it as a trade-off, um, unfortunately, and it's also pitted that way on the Hill. When we were going into, when we were dealing with the Liberia post-Charles Taylor, we had the fight for money that would be used to actually train the military. The, 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 our NGOs wanted it all to go in humanitarian assistance, uh, pretty much. Uh, they didn't want any money going to security sector reform. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a struggle to make the case, like you just made it so very clearly. Um, and, you know, partly that's because a lot of those guys are going to get the money, too. <laughs> you know, they have vested interests um, in that money going a certain way. Uh, so peacekeeping operations, our training programs on peacekeeping, security sector reform is much harder. I'll give you some of the sticky points in my presentation. We had a huge battle with DOD over this in the Congo, which also speaks to uh, civil society feeling uncomfortable. My argument was the Congolese military is awful. They're absolutely awful. You're not going to demobilize them, so you need to train them, right? They need to become more professional, more disciplined. They need to be held accountable. If they're attacking civilians or attacking uh, women, if they are stealing resources, you've got to create a structure, a framework, and training to deal with this army. It's, it's, it, the fact that it's so terrible is partly the reason why these militias and rebel groups and others can come in and out and exploit the resources and attack this, the, the civilian population. Um, DOD didn't see it that way, right? They're like, they're awful. They'll never be good. They never were good. Uh, we've got other things to do. And you're supposed to have civilian control. State Department, I mean, obviously DOD is civilians. OSD is, you know, run by Secretary of Defense, et cetera. Uh, but the Secretary of State is supposed to be the lead foreign policy person setting those priorities with the president, of course. Um, DOD wanted to do all of its operations in Chad, right? They were very interested in Chad because that's where Alpara was. You know, they were chasing them across the Sahel. Um, and that's where they wanted to do civil affairs and training, et cetera. And we said, but chat is important to us, uh, certainly, and especially as the situation between Darfur and Sudan and chat is uh, creating instability across that region. But our bigger priority is Congo and security sector reform in the Congo. You say you have no special ops guys, you have nobody to go do training in the Congo, Yet you got all these guys running around Chad. What's going on? Right? We couldn't reorient them. We even had Secretary Rice and Secretary Gates agree that Congo was a priority. And they still stall and still stall. Then the special ops guy at UCOM said, yes, we're gonna, we, we, we have a good relationship with you. We're going to support you. We're going to send some some assessment teams, and then we're going to, you know, put some trainers in there. And OSD said, no, you're not. Right? And it became a bureaucratic battle, an unfortunate one. Because then I said, well, then you're not going back to Chad. Right? Because if, if, Chad's not the priority, and, in, in you know, the, the foreign policy has to lead. 
And we're saying that the Congo is a priority. That's an example of how difficult. Mali is another example where, you know, our guys are up there. This is an, a different type of example. Um, this is now I'm, shift, I'm, I'm exposing some, some problems because I think it's important to do so. Um, a problem in Mali is, is the problem of if you want these countries to help you after your transnational terrorists, Al-Qaeda and, you know, AQIM, et cetera, sometimes they want you to help them, help them with their local terrorists, which you don't necessarily think is a terrorist. Right? You, you haven't framed them as a terrorist. You haven't labeled them as, they're not on your foreign terrorist organization. But they're saying, hey, wait a minute. Doesn't this go both ways? Uh, and that's a difficult conversation to have. I mean, I think it's important to put that on the table. That's a diff- As far as I know, there's only one example in which we helped uh, a government uh, in a situation where they were getting whooped up on by some rebels. You know, and they were sort of pinned down, and we helped get them out. We ext- helped extract them um, from that situation. The uh, Debbie was, you know, when Sudan sent those forces across uh, into Chad, and he was about to fall. He looked like he was going to fall. Everybody had written him off. The French helped him, and everybody wanted the French to help him, right? Now, we were frustrated with him because he's not doing anything on governance to reform or anything, but to let him fall to a Sudanese-backed attack, uh, and the French essentially had the Libyans airlift in arms to Debbie to get him out of that hot spot. Uh, the Djiboutians just had a situation with Eritrea, and they were looking for help. I don't think we helped them. We may have you know, said, well, you might want to watch out here or there. I don't really know what we did, you know, but we're right there. The French are right there in Djibouti, and they were you know, in a threat. So where is the mutual relationship there, and how do you manage that? It's very, very delicate. The uh, Ethiopians... You know, we, you know, we're saying, well, this Shabab and they're terrorists and they're transnational. And they're saying, well, you know, those Agadinis, you know, they're right in there with them. We're like, we don't have, those are domestic insurgents that you need governance to deal with. And they're saying, wait a minute, you know, um, Museveni with the Lord's Resistance Army. All right. So that's a sticky point. I'll leave you with that one. Please <laughs> Thank you.